Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to tonight's Wireside Chat. And uh, we are really, Melissa and I are super pleased to have our guest, Alan Phillips, who is, um, what is your what is your official title at, at SNHU, Alan? Oh, um, I'm the Director of Open Educational Resources and Intellectual Property. Um, I also oversee the archives. You're the archivist. Yeah, yes, wow. yeah, I am. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of really interesting things that uh, anybody who's graduate who's going to be around graduation weekend, you'll see them in the library and putting together a display. So, yeah, but I mostly work with copyright um, and intellectual property, the open educational resources, which are like those free textbooks that you hear a lot about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're trying to um, reduce costs for students. Well, I thought it would be a great idea to have you join us because copyright is such an essential part of what we do as writers, as creative writers. It's such a, um, a key element of our careers. Uh, and yet it's also an, an area that's kind of shrouded in mystery and fear. You know, it's like a lot of people really don't understand even even. Um, you know, I'm speaking for myself as a professional writer. I know there are areas of copyright law that I do not understand and that I should understand. So um, I guess before rather than just kind of pepper you with with a million questions, I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you and ask you, like, what do writers need to know about about copyright? Um, so I think a really good beginning point to know um, about copyright is that you don't have to register your works to have protection in them. Um, so they just have to be fixed in a tangible medium is actually how the, the wording of the law is. Um, so anytime you like type anything down, um, you, you know, jot down some notes about, you know, your characters that you're going to include in your novel, um, that, that starts, you know, that, that has, you've started like a copyright in your own work. Um, obviously, if you're going to develop that into like a whole novel, you know, you don't have, you know, it's not fully fleshed out at that point. And the other thing to know about that is you don't have to register your work to get copyright, but you also can't copyright an idea. So if we all came up with the same plot, right, it, our, all of our works would look kind of different, but we um, we would all have our own copyrights in them. I could not say copyright the idea of a murder mystery. Um, now, I could have like if you copied something of mine, you had like you took some very specific characters, if you borrowed like mannerisms of speech, um, if you described their manner of dress the same way that I described mine, you know, with some of the same background settings, then it might be an infringement. But otherwise, there, you can't copyright an idea. You can't copyright a fact um, just because you put hard work into something that is not it's a it's about originality and not like your hard work that went into making a copy or or something of a work. Um, and I believe so I, that's yeah. that's more or less why you can't copyright a title. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not unique enough, um, yeah. generally speaking, to to copyright it. Now, what you could do, though, um, if you say had something that was very, very unique um, in the title and you were um, a very successful, widely published author, you might trademark if the if the title was actually almost like your tagline and could be like sort of uh, thought of as a logo, uh, not a logo, um, uh, like a slogan mm -hmm. to describe your work. You, you could consider trademarking it um, or any like um, particular graphics that went along with it. Like I'm thinking of like a Stephen King novel where right. some of like the graphics would be uh, trademarked and would be um, definitely developed with an eye towards like how is that logo going to be used um, and how are the different creative elements within a work, those little, they're going to be parceled out with different types of licensing agreements. And um, I assume that, I mean, just thinking, you know, like if you, if, if, if you have the name of one of your characters in your title, like Harry Potter, for example, then that is a copyrightable, that title would fall under copyright. I couldn't, I couldn't call, call my book Harry Potter, right? I'd have to call him Larry 
botter or something. Exactly. Like, yes. Like that. Yeah. Uh, um, so let me let me ask. Go into the chat here because there is one question that kind of um, is a is a response to something you mentioned. This is from Cat Fox, who wonders. Um, but do you need, but you do need to register your work to achieve copyright protections if you pursue legal action. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Um, yeah. So if you find that somebody's been infringing your work, um, first and foremost, like you, you probably want to send like, you know, you might consider, you know, take note of what they're doing. Right. Start to keep a record of where you see your work showing up with that's been used without your permission. You definitely want to register it. Um, before you before you can bring a claim under the federal uh, copyright act, you you definitely need to have it registered. And that that is something that get, that you can do that anyone can do through the Library of Congress. Is that is that right? That's correct. Yeah, there's a self service portal, and I think it's up to ten works you can register at once for. I forget what the fee is. It's not mm -hmm. much. It's like a, a it's less than two hundred dollars. I want to say. So here's a, a hypothetical that I think preys upon the mind of writers. So let's say that I'm I'm sitting down at my computer or in front of my notebook and I'm jotting down, uh, I'm writing chapter one of of my masterpiece. Uh, the instant my pen touches the page, what I have written there is protected by copyright. But let's say that somehow or another somebody is looking over my shoulder and they are are also recording what I have written, and they are able to publish it first. How does my kind of theoretical copyright protection actually protect me in that instance? How can I possibly prove that copyright did in fact, you know, adhere in what I had written rather than what was published first? Oh, that's, you know, that's a very good question. Um, I, I don't really know exactly how you would how you would protect against that mm -hmm. other than keeping detailed notes. So, for example, if you had kept a journal and you had written some of these ideas down in there like months ago or years ago, you might be able to um, show, you know, in a in a, a courtroom setting that you had um that you had already started formulating the creative elements of your of your work now but you know like i said if if the other work you know if they just saw like a slight you know hint of what the story was and then they developed a you know one around it right that's that, not going to be protected no no it might not be because they they would be going on to build off of your idea um you know it's plagiarism for sure Mm -hmm. But it's uh, it's yeah, it's it's kind of one of those gray areas. It's it's with a lot of copyright cases, it's clear like whoever has like, you know, more money, more sophistication, is usually prevails. So um, so what should what should like you know writers what should our students do to kind of protect themselves um, at at the level that most of them are at right now? Is it something they even need to worry about? Should they be registering, you know, for example, as they're working on their thesis novels here, should they be registering their copyright? Um, so that's uh, that's a good question. Now, I can't give out like any like legal advice. I understand. At all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this is all just kind of like informational. Um, so if if you're, they're thinking about publishing it, they can um, they can uh, they can register it now. They uh, these are not going through like the ETD system. It's those are not th these are separate from that. These creative um, MFA theses, right? I mean, I I don't know what the ETD some ETD system is. Okay, all right, yeah. So that so there is um for some of the programs there's a requirement that they publish, and those uh. yeah those come from ProQuest, and I think there is a there's like a there's an opportunity to pay a fee and have then ProQuest takes care of registering your copyright for you. Okay. Yeah, um, no, we don't do yeah. that. But no, I mean, got, yeah. in the, in the, you know, in the traditional publishing world, of course, the model has always been that the publisher does take care of copyright. I mean, they register the copyright on behalf of the author in the author's name. Um, and that's just uh, part of the service that they provide uh, as your publisher. I, in the self-publishing world, 
um, then I assume I don't have a direct experience in that, but I'm assuming that um, in that case, it's up to the writer to to secure the um, copyright registration unless they're working through, you know, some kind of hybrid publisher who is going to do that for them much as a traditional publisher would. That's um, yeah. So it, you might run into a situation where it might be in your best interest to consider registering it yourself. Mm -hmm. If you have, you know, any questions about what like a smaller independent uh, publisher might do. Uh, do you have a question, Melissa? Oh. oh, Melissa, we can't hear you. You're muted. Oh, you're muted. Yeah. I'm sorry. What a rookie, such a rookie mistake. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask a question on behalf of one of the one of our students, Cat Fox, who asks, but you do need to register your work to achieve copyright protections if you pursue legal action. Yes or no? Uh, yes. Yes, you do. So, yeah, a few times that you de that you definitely want to register your work is um if you be, before you bring a suit, you ha absolutely have to. That's the one condition that you do have to. Um, but if you're going to be publishing it, you you might want to. Um, otherwise, you can always put. Um, it doesn't have to be registered in order to put a copyright statement on the work. And mm -hmm. so you can you can do that, and you can put all you know, you can put you know any any kind of statement on there about you know copyright and then you can put your email address on there if you think that you want them to contact you um you could look I mean, at the creative commons licenses too right and that's something that's very uh, popular with um self-published writers it, it, you know it's interesting because there are all of these um i guess there's a couple things that i want to i want to mention i mean first of all there's all there's this this uh, complicated uh, kind of legal framework that um, writers need to be cognizant of and perhaps even participate in if they want to, for example, register copyright on their own work. Um, let's say, for example, that they want to register copyright on their work prior to sending it uh, to an agent or prior to sending it to a publisher. I feel as though, based on what I know about the publishing industry, most agents and publishers would look askance at that. They, they would feel they would feel that uh, issue of trust trust had been had been uh, had been breached somehow um very uh it, it, it's it's uh you know it's like these protections are there but it's almost like a kind of so to speak gentleman's agreement that you're not going to really avail yourselves of them because we're going to do that for you right ah okay oh so that's kind of the tradition with with that yeah. industry and it, and I guarantee you that if an agent receives a manuscript that has like, you know, title page and then underneath the little copyright symbol and the author's name, they're going to roll their eyes at that and mm -hmm. say, oh, amateur, because no uh. professional writer will do that. Yeah. But but the, the truth of the matter is that nobody knows why. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these are just like the traditions that have been you know, perpetuated across the years. But once you start thinking about it, especially with the information that you're providing us with today, you kind of have to ask yourself, well, why wouldn't I want to copyright my work? Because that is a tangible protection that all of these, you know, so to speak, gentlemen's agreements don't really offer. It doesn't seem like anyway. No, and, and you could get somebody from outside of the industry who behaves differently right. around, you know, around your tradition, um, you know, if they're not aware of it or if they, you know, aim to disrupt it. Yes. So I guess if you wanted to, possibly the safest route would be to copyright it and then don't put a notice on there. Yeah. Because you don't have to. Yeah, the, the, the notice and the registration are not at all tied to each other right um and then when your publisher is ready to publish and they're going to get the copyright for you, you just say don't bother already took care of it yeah and nobody's yeah. gonna they're not gonna they're not gonna terminate your contract at that at that point um you know one other thing i i want to mention is, is like and and i i'm mentioning this because i know this is a, a concern of students and melissa i'm sure you've encountered this with your students as well um, especially students who are coming into the program 
uh, in you know introduction to creative uh, to the MFA 505 or or other courses, they might be concerned about the whole workshopping process. You know, um, my work is going to be seen by other students, and it's apt to be stolen by by some of these students. Now you've already put put some of that uh, Ellen to rest with with this with the idea that um, you know I, an idea is not a copyrightable anyway. Um, but I but I want to just speak out to reassure anybody who who is a student here and is and has had those kind of concerns that I have never seen that happen. Absolutely never here at SNHU anyway. I'm sure it could happen elsewhere, maybe. But what about you, Melissa? Is that something that you've encountered? Uh, I've encountered concern yeah. from students, but I have never seen theft of a manuscript. No. I think I find that um, when students come into an MFA program, it's not because they're trying to like harvest ideas from other people. <laughs> it's because they are overflowing with ideas. They have too many ideas of their own to bother, you yeah. know, uh, trying to steal something from somebody else. Um, and obviously there are student conduct uh, rules in place at SNHU that would that would come down very hard on anybody that uh, that did in fact try to take a, another person's work and pass it off on their own. Well, and there's such a digital paper trail these days. I mean that just I don't I don't think you could get away with that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's very true. And and if somebody did lift whole sentences of of creative description and use them wholesale, then that would rise to the that's level plagiarism. of copyright infringement. And that's from, from SNHU's pers perspective, that's plagiarism. And and you would be you would be subject to, um, you know, to, to harsh sanctions from the university. Oh, yeah. And if the university looked the other way on this, you could you know, you might consider, you know, including SNHU in a lawsuit as well, because you might say like, well, you know, they encourage that right. type of behavior and right. now my work got stolen. And but that's, I think why, be, yeah, that's why so that does not happen. Because, it's not going to happen though. Yeah. Because even if like, you know, if, even if like, if we were all to say, sit down and write, you know, some haiku about some flowers, they'd all like be so radically different from one another. Uh, yeah, Michael, haiku that's is a, about the only thing I can write these days. So it's <laughs> always my example. Michael makes a good point that the very act of putting your work up in classes for workshopping creates proof that you are the author of that of that work. There you go. It's actually so at that point, your work has been um, fixed in a tangible medium. So yeah. that's Michael. You're absolutely right in that. And people and, and they don't want to steal. Nobody. Um, nobody wants to trash the reputation mm -hmm. um, so let me ask you this because um i know that you are you yourself were were a writer at, at one point and you um you also have worked in publishing you worked in magazine publishing uh now you're you're an archivist um one of my favorite novels in the last couple of years is a, a speculative fiction novel uh kind of a post-apocalyptic novel called archivist wasp and it's 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 about I mean, it's it's like it's a, somebody who's going around performing archival duties that are probably not quite what you're doing. It involves like um, killing ghosts and uh, kind of absorbing their 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 uh, information about the past world. But um, but still, I, I think archivist is just a very cool title. So. <laughs> Um, but I get what I'm what I'm asking is like, can you talk a little bit about your pathway from from, you know, being a writer, then getting into publishing and then getting into um, archival work in uh, library science? Just because I think it's important for um, our students to know that, um, you know, we teach we teach uh, our students um, a lot of different skills that will help them pursue a freelance career or a multitude of freelance careers that will help support their writing. But what we don't teach them about library science and we don't teach them about all of the various um, uh, you know, jobs that are related to library science, which are absolutely 
right up the alley of any writer. I mean, what could be a better job than to be surrounded by books like that? So what was your pathway? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, so I graduated with the intention of going into the publishing industry. I had been working for um, I'd been working for a magazine um, and I really wanted to stay in that field. And it was just the, it was the worst time to join the publishing industry. It was um, there was a really bad recession going on. A lot of jobs were just getting lost, just left and right. So I ended up going into um, marketing instead. And I did like a lot of writing um, of like for software companies where I wrote like newsletters and like promotional type stuff. Then I, I kind of missed the arts. So I ended up going back into the arts. I worked for the Nashua Symphony Association. So I was like there uh, as the executive assistant. So I would sometimes do a little bit of writing business proposals for uh, donors that we were courting and things like that, um, put together brochures and then um, and then at some point I, I decided I was I started volunteering for my public library. I always loved libraries. Um, so I Yay, started libraries. Volu- yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so I saw a little thing like in our local paper, they were looking for library volunteers. So what they were actually looking for is they were looking for somebody to run the friends of the library. So and put and host like large pancake breakfasts so i got into fundraising for the lot for the library but then i was really interested in going to library school i'd kind of been thinking about it for a few years anyway so i kind of knew a few people in the library world at that point so somebody got me a part-time job working for um unh law in a which is an academic law library and um and then i started going to library school from there um and then you know i I ultimately ended up back in publishing, I feel, because what I do now, um, what a lot of libraries are doing is there's institutional repositories. We have the academic archive, which is where the um, where the MFA papers will go, along with some other other university publications, the ETD uh, theses I was telling you about. They are in there as well. Um, So there's the libraries are kind of they've been tasked to like publish a lot of material. So um, we even publish like journals. We're not publishing any here right now um, other than it, that within the library. Uh, SNHU does publish, you know, a number of journals and other serials. But um, the library is increasingly it, getting involved in publishing. Mm-hmm. And we have like marvelous platforms and wonderful tools. We know how to set up publications so that they're trackable through the years uh, if you want to if you want to do something in a serialized fashion like a journal um you really want to know how to how to set that up correctly from um from the start and how to how to store it properly um so that's kind of been my path here it was kind of a little bit you know i i did a lot of things with my writing degree before i and ended you, up and you still you do a lot of writing in your current role as well I do. Yes. Um, yeah. Like I was telling you, I actually was writing um, some case studies earlier today. I've been investigating copyright laws of different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, my goal is to write one for every country that SNHU has a campus in. We have campuses around the world, um, like on a um, number of refugee camps. We have a campus uh-huh. in Rwanda. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rwanda. Um, somewhere in the Middle East. I can't. I, it's escaping me now. Um, and then we have the ones in Mexico, not not in a um, not on a refugee uh, camp, but we are teaching programs um, in Mexico and Colombia as well. And those programs are taught in Spanish. Yeah, isn't that interesting, Melissa? Did yeah, I, I, I had no I idea about no that. idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's so interesting. We have like we have almost um, we have almost a like 200,000 students worldwide. Mm-hmm. A lot of wow. students. They're they're under different they're under different like units though, right? right. So Right. Where, you know, they're not all like in Southern New Hampshire University as we recognize it. They have their own catalogs and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. But we want them all to come to the next Wireside chat. Yeah. <laughs> right? I know. And they can because they're, you know. That's right. Yeah. Which That's is a right. really nice thing about online so um, so d- does the library have anything to do with the publication of the Penman Review or is that something that takes place elsewhere? 
That takes place elsewhere. Um, so the Penman Review, it looks like they have their own website. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know what they're hosting it on underneath. Um, there is, what are it? The Literary Journal, or the older version of the Literary Journal is on a WordPress site. Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm assuming that most of the students attending today know about the Penman Review, which is the the Southern New Hampshire University literary magazine, basically. Um, and it's a great, uh, great venue for you to, to uh, submit your work, to get into the habit of submission. Um, I think uh, getting into that habit is one of the most important things that a writer can do. One of the most uh, important things in achieving success as a writer is submitting your work. Um, and I want to encourage everybody uh, to get in the, to, to kind of begin to establish that habit now um, by submitting to the Penman Review. Every fall, there's a fiction contest that's, uh, that's I believe you are all eligible to, um, to uh, uh, submit to, and there are, there are some prizes and scholarships and things like that. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, uh, um, a credit you can be proud of, I think, to, to be published in the Penman Review. All right, Kat, second rejection from the Penman Review. You know, rejection, rejections are important. You know, I think, I think if you look, if you look at submission as being part of the job as a, of a writer, then rejections are, are really kind of to be celebrated in a way because they show that you're doing your job. Um, I mean, I know they're painful, too. I still get rejected more than accepted, I have to admit. And I'm never I've never quite gotten used to it. I don't I just don't, you know, fundamentally understand why others don't recognize my genius. But <laughs> but there it is. You know, it, the ah. facts speak for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, I developed a very thick skin around my writing. Um, and I think it had to do with a lot of the types of writing that I did that uh, yeah, I never, I never, pub I never had the opportunity to publish something that was creative. Um, but lots and lots of like marketing type writing, journalism style writing, yeah. and and just having you know my boss sit there and be like, no, 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 like what, no, and like having my grammar cor get corrected. Um, yeah, <laughs> and now it will happen. No, it doesn't happen here. Um, but uh, it, um, I think, is the academic style kind of lends itself. It's a little different, but yeah, you know, get things back with your grammar fixed. It's just a, kind of kind of a, a harsh feeling, you know. If you yeah. yeah. No, I mean you 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 know, if writing is such an odd profession or pursuit, because on the one hand, there's there's there are very few pursuits that that involve getting your ego kicked as as <laughs> as consistently as as writing, and yet. It requires a, an ego, right, to keep doing it in the face in the face of that. So it's a kind of a weird paradox. Melissa, do you, do, I know you you can't possibly be getting work back that has grammar mistakes uh, pointed out by by an editor, can't do you? No, not grammar mistakes. <laughs> but but say, Melissa, well, you're a professional writer. I'm a yeah. I taught grammar for so long. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, and watched a lot of Schoolhouse Rock videos. Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, that yeah. That was yeah. so important. Yeah, but oh, definitely, yes, on the rejection. I mean, I sent out query letters just the other day for a magazine article that I want to write, and I got five rejections on that and then one acceptance, which is good. Because yeah. I can only really publish it in one place. Right. It only takes one. Right. <laughs> That's all it takes. But uh, unfortunately, you have to go through sometimes quite a few rejections to to get to that one. And that's the dispiriting part. Yeah, it was brutal. <laughs> yeah. So so let me let me ask you this. What do you do in the face of that kind of rejection to keep your keep your spirits up, to keep, you know, to keep submitting to 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 to, to say to yourself, there is something valuable in this piece of, you know, this piece of writing, even though it's been rejected by, you know, 10 people. I've been in this game for so long. It's been 20 years. And I, in that time, I've realized there's an editor for everything. 
There is a a magazine for every article or essay. There's an editor for every novel. And so I just persevere until I find that perfect match. Sometimes it takes two years and it's always worth it. In the meantime, you know, I always have several queries out. So I'm not too desperately married to any one query. And that helps. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because that spreads the pain out a little bit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> By the way, I put um, I put two links in the chat for everybody. One is in terms of plagiarism, an excellent article from the New York Times titled "Who's the Bad Art Friend?" Oh that yeah, just rocked the literary world last yes. year. Such a good read. And the other is a TED Talk by a man talking about how he invited rejection. I think he tried to get a hundred rejections and he's so funny and so charming about all the different, um, all the different things he asked, hoping yeah. to get rejection <laughs> to sort of um, give himself a thicker skin. So those are really uh, good that, that, that has a kind of George Costanza like <laughs> genius to it. <laughs> But I mean, I, I'm going to tell a very quick story just to illustrate um, the the value of this, uh, of what Melissa is talking about. Um, I, I I knew a, a editor, a science fiction editor, Gardner Dozois, um, was the editor of Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. And uh, another friend of mine, he li- Gardner lived in uh, Philadelphia. That's where he did all his editing work, even though the magazine's based in New York. Um, Another friend of mine was good friends with him, also lived in Philadelphia. He used to go over to his house every once in a while on a regular, you know, more or less regular basis, just pop in, see how he's doing. Over the years, there got to be this kind of joke between them because this one guy was constantly submitting stories to Asimov's science fiction. And Gardner would be, you know, reading, ah, you won't believe the latest thing from this guy. And he would read it aloud and they'd all laugh. and, And, you know, months, years go by. And finally... One day, my friend comes in and and Dozois looks a little dejected. And my friend's like, well, what is it? He says, well, remember so-and-so, this author? Yeah. Well, I I don't know if he got better or or if he just wore me down, but I bought one of his stories. (laughs) And um, I don't think, you know, it matters whether he got better or he wore him down. The, The point is that he sold a story to one of the top science fiction magazines in the country and that is you know solely because he persisted and i you know it kind of gets to what you said as well melissa that there's there's an editor out there for for every story now gardner didn't realize that he was going to be that editor but in he was i i i love that story because it's 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 realistic but also hopeful Other questions in the chat that I have missed? I thought I saw one. Um, Somebody's asking about a suggestion. Let's see. Right. Those are, Kat asked if if you run into any copyright issues. I think Kat meant taking suggestions Ah. from classmates Ah. on annotate or, you know, a similar... So incorporating those suggestions into your story, for example. Uh, so, you know, you um, one thing to know about joint authorship in uh, you, the United States uh, copyright law is that um, each author has the same amount of rights. If it's a if it's a work of joint authorship and you can't separate, it's not like one person wrote a chapter, another person wrote another chapter, but the work is is one then like author number one can monetize it in one way author number two can also monetize it in the other way um they both own copyright to 100 percent of the work but that's not something that would apply to a workshop situation where where one writer is offering suggestions and another writer decides oh that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. i'm going to incorporate those that suggestion in my own way into my work Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that would not rise to the level of joint authorship. 
Um, but say if you really, you know, say you, as you were like working with somebody, like the project, you know, evolved into something that was a joint work. Mm-hmm. Um, so they say with joint works that you probably want to have your agreements in place before yeah. you go too far. That makes so that you sense. don't end up in a, in a dispute. Just because the the way that joint authorship works in this country is is interesting. M- Melissa, have you ever have you ever been a ghostwriter? Oh gosh, no. Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have much too too much ego. <laughs> so I I also have a lot of ego, but I also <laughs> at one point was desperate for money. So I have been a, a ghostwriter, and the 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 um the uh, uh, the way that that uh, ghostwriting kind of intersects with copyright law is is sort of interesting because it, I, I obviously can't name names or anything, but I wrote I, I I created and wrote a novel that appeared under somebody else's name, and um, and yet even though all of those activities would normally be enough to establish my copyright to that material. I did not have any copyright. I had no right to that material at all because I had signed it away. Um, and um, uh, I did that for, you know, for money. <laughs> um, but but that was, you know, that was the terms of the contract that I would have no right to, you know, assert authorship and and so on and so forth. And you know, I had a sum up front that that uh, that paid me for for um, Essentially, I guess for for selling my copyright to somebody else, I guess that must have been it. Um, yeah. So work for hire too, typically. Yeah, and that's yeah. what it was. That's yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's what it was. It was a work for hire arrangement. Yeah, and in this and in your case, it was contracted work, so you definitely yeah. had the terms spelled out. But for regular employees, um, so those case studies that I was describing that I wrote. Um, the copyright in those belongs to Southern New Hampshire University. It doesn't belong right. to me at all. Um, right. Yeah. And um, I know I've also worked in my in my desperate past um, for for comic books. I, I I wrote a series for for DC Comics, and um, and I mentioned that because comic books have kind of uh, uh, had a big impact on copyright law. And and the way in which creators uh, retain some right to the characters that they create, because it used to be, uh, Ellen, more just exactly how you described. If you if you were working for Marvel, uh, either as an employee or in a work for hire uh, um, situation, any any superhero you created would belong to Marvel or would belong to DC. You have no right whatsoever to um, any profits, any share of the profits or anything. Um, and it wasn't until really like the 70s that you started to see um, creators uh, insist upon um, their right to the characters that they created and, and which had made the, those comic book companies uh, so much money. And now, um, like when I was working for DC Comics, I, I retained a share in the in the in the characters that I created so that if they're ever used again, I would receive some portion of of, you know, whatever profits there were. Of course, those characters have never been used again. Um, That's one way that the that the comic book companies can can, you know, kind of get around that. But, you know, somebody like um, like Neil Gaiman, uh, I assume, does very well with with his share of. of uh, the profits of characters that he created and certainly Alan Moore and, and creators of that stature also do very well. Have you ever um, had to do any rights reversion type work to get the rights to something you sold away back? Yes. In fact, I just did that. My agent for many years had been been trying to get back the rights to my um, second novel. Um, which my publisher Harper Collins was holding on to um, because the contract for that novel was kind of signed in a in a kind of a, a weird period where where like uh, 
ebooks were were just starting to come onto the scene and nobody really understood uh what impact they were going to have or or how they were going to uh function from a legal standpoint like for example in most rights reversion clauses in a contract the publisher has the right if you ask for the rights to your book back because when you sell a book to a publisher you're basically more or less renting them your your copyright um, your copyright stays with you, but they have control over it. But if they're not doing certain things that are spelled out in your contract to promote your book or a certain amount of time has passed or uh, sales figures fall below a certain threshold or some combination of all of that, then you can ask for the rights to your you can ask for your copyright back. And there are certain conditions set out that, for example, you ask for your your copyright back and the publisher says, I'm going to bring your book back in print. And then they then that's what they do. And they have the right to do that. But um, where do ebooks come in? You know, because ebooks are. They never go out of print as long as you have an ebook for sale somewhere, it's in print. So that was the loophole that enabled not just me, but many, many writers to have their books kind of um held hostage more or less by the by the by their uh, publishers and after a long struggle i did finally just like a couple months ago get the rights back to my second novel tumbling after wow yeah so paul what will you do with that book well i would i now have the rights back to all of my books except for my most recent novel which I only sold in the UK, so I still own the US rights to that. And I would like to I would like to, you know, self-publish them because I haven't been able to find a traditional publisher for them. So that's the next step for me. Wait, so the one that this your second novel, the one that HarperCollins published, you're going to self-publish that? I would like to. Would you self-publish it under a different title? No. Nope. Are you allowed to tweak the manuscript? Sure. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, because I have oh. the rights. I mean, I own that manuscript now. I uh, It's completely mine. And in fact, oh. my first novel, I, I have revised that. And when mm-hmm. I come when that comes out, uh, the self-published edition of that comes out, it will be, you know, a revised edition. Of wow. That. Yeah, I love that. Um, so, Mike. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm, I was just going to read the same the same question that you yeah, were. Go, go ahead. Go for it. Okay, so 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 Mike Michael says I have something that I wrote for hire a few years ago and the company has seized since, so I don't really know what I can do with it now. And that's a really great question. Um, and I don't know, Alan, what do you think? What happens in a situation yeah, like that? That is so. I'd want to know, like, did they sell their Absolutely. you know their property and their intellectual property what kind of company it was yeah um yeah were there, so were there um were there uh you know debtors who were who were you know who who assumed uh copyrights as as part of the um uh, property of the company that's a that's... sticky legal situation you got to get the lawyers involved at that point i would imagine yeah yeah, the, the library actually holds, uh, it's kind of for business students, but they, they hold research uh, workshops on how to how to conduct uh, like business research. Mm-hmm. So also a good idea if you're looking for background material mm-hmm. for your, you know, for writing um, creatively. But yeah, you're like everyone's welcome to like go to any topics that are being presented on, even if they're not necessarily for your field. So that would be a really good one. I would definitely... Well- Get in touch with the li- with someone in the library. Yeah, you know what I'm thinking would be a great thing to do would be to partner with the library for for a webinar. Maybe have have somebody else here, uh, word for word. Uh, I'm sorry, Wireside Chat, who could who could kind of talk to us about what do writers need to know in term, you know, for researching their fiction and how how the how the library or various databases accessible through the library can be useful. Um, to writers for that, because I think a lot of writers don't understand the full range of um, of research materials and resources that are at their disposal. I mean, here at SNHU, but just in general, like how do I how do I, um, you know, fill the gaps that I need to fill in order to make my story authentic? 
Oh yeah, there's some great research out there. Um, the um, Federal Reserve banks put out really, really interesting publications. Uh, there's the National Bureau of Economic Research puts out stuff. There's medical research out there. There's medical research publications out there that are geared for consumers and non, you know, non-medical professionals. There, there's like a lot of really, really good research that comes out of um, the federal government in particular and, and the, the, the Federal Reserve Bank, which is not part of the government, but, you know, similar. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to pursue that and, and maybe you can be a part of it, Ellen, too, that, that we'll, we'll try to work something out for, you know, that will help writers, that will give writers, give our students a firmer grasp on, um, on how to research, how to, and then we can also talk, of course, about incorporating that research into fiction, which is kind of a another sort of another kettle of fish. Yeah. That yeah. Has and its own challenges. And and another really good um, career path, too, is if you can write like these types of business reports, like business analysts on Wall Street, people who can do forecasting. If you are familiar with just something a little bit outside of your own like creative sphere, like mm-hmm. learn a little bit about licensing, for example, so you know how to license works or learn a little bit about, you know, take a basic economics class or two so you can write, you know, really good business reports or take a software class so you can write software manuals. And those can also be the sorts of things that can provide a really good income and you're writing, but, but it'll still hopefully give you the you know freedom in your personal life to pursue your creative stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, Melissa, that is basically what you do, isn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do a blend of journalism and fiction writing. Yeah. I and teaching. And, oh, yeah, and teaching and parenting. And yeah, yeah. And coaching, coaching running the running team. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so have questions? Yeah, do we have any other questions? We're kind of coming up to the the last 10 minutes or so of our uh, of our chat. So I um, wonder if I can just kind of open people's cameras up. Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> I don't think you can do that. Yeah, I don't think I can. I, I thought I could. I can. But maybe I can. Students can. They can turn their cameras on if they want to, right? I'm not sure they can, but I think oh. I, I can do it. I can do it for them. So if, if if anybody would like to do that, just raise your hand and then I'll turn your, your camera and your mic on. I can I do that. I thought everybody was just being shy. No, I shut everybody down, but now, no, I, can't, no. now I can't turn them all back on. <laughs> the law of unintended consequences. Oh, no. Um, I know we talked about this a bit, but Michael said in the chat that um, a wireside chat on researching would be really useful. And this just came up in my thesis two course. Mm-hmm. We're talking about research in both historical fiction and in speculative fiction, particularly science fiction. So that yeah. would be a really cool wireside chat. Yes, it would. I mean, yeah, I, I would love to do that. I, I'm fascinated by, I, I write a lot of historical fiction, um, but I also write speculative fiction. So uh-huh. I, I, you know, I have to do both of those kinds of research. Yeah. For, I'm sorry, but for anybody who writes historical fiction, there was a great NPR interview on today um, with Karen Joy Fowler, who just wrote oh, I love her. Booth about John Wilkes Booth. And yes. She was talking about what to include and what to leave out and how much she had to speculate on and all the different research that was available on the Booth family. It was fascinating. I'll I, I actually just just uh, swapped out the stories in uh, in MFA 505. Um, so the, there used to be a story there. Um, who was that by? Um, I'm blanking on the writer's name. But anyway, I put in a story by Karen Joy Fowler. Um, oh, yeah. Because I, I, it was time for something new, but I'm also just a big fan of her work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll put the link in the chat. Excellent. 
Nancy, I, I see that you said I can turn my camera on. Only the organizers can unmute us. Do you want do you want me to unmute you? Do you have a question you'd like to ask on camera? Do it, Nancy. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. I'd like to test it out anyway. <laughs> if this but is the Nancy I'm thinking of, Nancy. But you don't fine. have to do it if you don't want to. So what what else? Does anybody else have have copyright? Questions for um, archivist Ellen? I do. <laughs> oh, yeah, go for it, Amber. I'll go ask ahead, you. Amber. I'm going to. Uh, yep, I'm trying to put you on the camera right now. All right, Amber, you should be you should be ready to go. It looks like you're still looks like you're muted, but your camera should be should be. All right, obviously, I have to research this a little bit further. I apologize, Amber. I don't think I can. Uh, but if you have a if you have a question, meanwhile I'll answer Kat's question or pass Kat's question on to um, Ellen. Do smaller publishers typically handle copyright registration, or does it just depend? So uh, you were you were saying that they typically the the larger ones definitely will. Yes, um, I mean, yeah. and even a lot of the the like hybrid publishers that handle a lot of the. Um, you know, kind of more onerous tasks of publishing will will do that as well. Sometimes they charge a fee for it, which is not cool in my opinion, but I guess everybody has to make a, a living somehow. Oh, how much do they charge? Do they charge like well beyond like because it's not it's not very expensive. Is it difficult to register it yourself? I mean, I've never done that. No, it's not. It's just kind of tedious. OK, oh, you have to go through. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that. And yeah, I, mean, you know, I put it, a copyright statement on my stuff, but. Nobody. It's not it's not super expensive, but it but it is, you know, it's not peanuts either. You know, it, it, it adds up if you're copywriting, you know, more more than a couple of works. And and of course, you also have to have to get your, you know, you know your ISBN numbers. And those are those those are, you know, not free either. Oh, that I thought that the pub I see that's something I definitely thought the publisher did was the. ISBN yeah, they do. Oh, they do. They do. Oh, OK. Yeah. But a do they charge publisher. you back for that? Then? No, not no. a traditional publisher. But but, you know, again, the you know, self-publishing is kind of the Wild West and you really have to be on your toes uh, as a writer not to be taken advantage of. So let me ask another uh, answer, another question here. Will agents, publishers prefer to get queries of uncopyrighted work? Well, in the sense that Ellen was describing that anything that you um, that you uh, fix in a tangible uh, form, I, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it. So Medium. if you send a manuscript to a, to a publisher, that work is copyrighted. It's already copyrighted. You own the copyright in that work, even if you haven't registered the copyright. So what agents prefer to see is unpublished work. Uh, Wow, there's some great questions coming in. Yeah, now they're coming in. So, um, Ellen, what happens when a manuscript is submitted to copyright, when you try to register your copyright uh, with the Library of Congress? How, how do they know that you're not trying to register something that's already copyrighted? What kind of due diligence do they do, if any? Um, so I believe they do less and less. Yeah. Um, they no longer require you to deposit it. So initially, the idea was that the Library of Congress would have one copy mm, of each book. Of everything. That was published, that's right. right. I forgot about that. And that's that. just crazy to think about, right? They they pick and choose what they're going to put in, you know, and certainly what they're going to get on, you know, in print. Yeah. It's probably yeah. very select at this point. Well, there's only so much space, you know. I mean, good grief. Yeah. But libraries still do buy stuff in print if it's worthwhile. Mm hmm. Um, but yeah, so they, they won't even, they can't even electronically track. Yeah. 
what they need. Um, they're definitely, you know, we run out of, we were looking at storage for the archives and I was like, well, you know, they're like, what do you need? I'm like, well, I, I need like 15 terabytes now. And I think I want five to 10 terabytes a year going forward. Yeah. They were wow. like, oh, they were like, we, we didn't think you needed like, you know, that kind of storage. I'm like, you need a lot of storage. <laughs> yeah. a, a terabyte here and a terabyte there. And pretty soon yeah. you're talking about real storage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have like old movies and stuff. So. <laughs> uh, so what else? What other questions do we have here? I follow a few self-pubbed authors who have been accused recently of plagiarism. Does having the copyright registration help in those cases or is this something that only having a lawyer can help with? Uh, I think, you know, if, if you're on record as having it, you know, it, it definitely you're on record that you have published it or that it you have copyrighted it by that date. You've definitively fixed it in the tangible medium. It's com it's a complete work by the time you're copywriting it, most likely. Um, so, I, you know, that's one of the things about copyright law is a lot of times it is like whoever puts up a better defense yeah. and whoever has a better lawyer. Um, and I mean, keep, let's face it in the a lot of a lot of these kind of cases are may never come before a court of law, but they are ne ne nevertheless, you know, um, uh, they, they're kind of um, fought in the courtroom of Twitter, you know, and, and in that case, no lawyers can help you. <laughs> um, no, you know, no copyright can help you because. Uh, people will say what they want and they'll come up with their whatever explanations they choose to explain your copy right away. Um, yeah, I, I think that's just the reality right now. Yeah. And then, like, you, you have to wonder, like, what are you not writing while you're embroiled in a copyright or a plagiarism yeah. dispute? Yeah. Um, and, and, and who might not want to work with you? Well, there there's, you know, damage to your reputation for sure. Hey, I, I, I know we're coming to the end here. And before we go, I want to just give a shout out to Kat, who who wrote here. I have a small publisher who's very interested in my thesis novel already. I think that's just awesome. Congratulations. And I wish you every success with that. Very nice. And I'm getting to read that thesis novel right now. It's fantastic. Oh, are you? Is, is Kat in your class? Okay, yeah. that's great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. You do. You should consult. And actually, Mike, I'm glad you you mentioned that. Yes, you should consult a lawyer. But, you know, publishing law is its own weird thing. And if you get if you go go to like, you know, your your um, aunt, you know, who happens to be a successful, you know, real estate lawyer or some high powered corporate lawyer, they will not be able to help you with their publishing law because the terms of art are so arcane and have been developed in a kind of like, you know, case of like separate evolution from other types of law that you really need a publishing lawyer uh, in order to navigate, um, you know, anything having to do with copyright or or, you know, your whatever contract a publisher might offer you. Um, you're going to you're you're another lawyer will either miss stuff that they should have caught and or will fixate on things that are meaningless. <laughs> it's very true. They don't teach that in the um, in the general law programs. Um, so we actually so plug for a local school here. UNH Law is the, one of the top ten law schools in the country for intellectual property. There, um, they were founded in like the 70s, but they have always been in the top ten for IP mm -hmm. and copyright. Yeah, mostly patents. Yeah. So, folks, we have hit the nine o'clock mark. Uh, this has been a great discussion. Ellen, thank you so much for joining well. us. And uh, Melissa, I'm glad you glad you made it. Thank you, as always. You are the most awesome co-host. Thank you. And I want to thank all of our students for for making time on a Monday evening to uh, join us and learn a little bit about copyright. We'll see you next time, I hope. Thank you, Ellen. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It was really nice to, to meet you, Melissa, and nice to meet you, Paul. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so anyone who has any questions, um, feel free. I'm going to put my uh, I'll put my email address in the uh Oh, that'd be chat. great. Yeah. 
And um, in the fall, we're going to do a whole series of workshops. Oh, that's really awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And well, we're going to try to do one for um, copyright. We're going to try to do like different types of creative works, visual arts, performing arts. So we might try to do one just for writers. if we. We'd love that. Yeah. And we'll, help, we'll do everything we can to help you. Just, oh, just awesome. feel free to call on us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to end right. the recording here, folks. Good night, everybody. Okay. Good night. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much, Ellen. You're welcome. Take care, Paul. Yep. Bye-bye.